This is Mark preaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, and these are the words that he pens. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they, his disciples, woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? They were filled with a great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Our text this week begins with the calm before the storm. There is oftentimes a calm before the storm. Our text this morning brings us to the end of another full day of ministry for Jesus. Mark says, on that day when evening had come. Now you'll note here that the day that Mark is speaking about actually began at the beginning of chapter 4. With Jesus teaching beside the sea. You see, teaching is what teachers do. And Jesus, among many other things, was a phenomenal teacher. He was a great teacher. He was not just a great teacher, as some would espouse. He was God come in flesh. But he was a great teacher, and teachers teach. Throughout the gospel narratives, we see Jesus teaching in towns and in villages and synagogues and homes, by the sea, on mountainsides and fields and gardens, at weddings, beside sickbeds, sitting next to a well, over meals, with religious folks and common folks, to small groups and to the masses, in the public arena, and in smaller, intimate settings like the upper room. Everywhere we find Jesus, we find him teaching and preaching. What was Jesus preaching? What was Jesus teaching? If you can remember back to our opening studies, back in chapter 1, Mark tells us that Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time has fulfilled, or the time has come, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. What was Jesus teaching and preaching in every one of these forementioned settings? Jesus was teaching that the kingdom had come because the king had now broken into our world and is among us. And the call, better stated as the command, is to repent and believe. Repent and believe in the gospel, Jesus said. That's what Jesus was teaching. That's what Jesus was preaching everywhere he went as he crisscrossed Galilee. He had come to point the world to himself as the Messiah and the sovereign redeemer of sinners. Has he redeemed you? Has he redeemed you? Much of Jesus' ministry up to this point has taken place in and around the city of Capernaum. This was kind of home base or mission control for most of Jesus' ministry. Capernaum sits right on the, the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And on this day, we find Jesus teaching there. And like most times, Jesus has a full classroom. As has been a reoccurring theme in our study 
of Jesus' ministry to this point, wherever he was, wherever he went, crowds of inquisitive followers were right by his side, following right on his heels. And as Jesus began to teach along the shoreline this afternoon, such a large crowd formed that Jesus and his disciples were forced to board a small fishing vessel where he continued to preach. And it was from this small boat that Jesus taught the crowds the parable of the sower. That was a couple of weeks ago. How seed, some falls on the path, some falls on, some, on rocky ground, some falls on thorns, and some falls on good soil. Last week we saw that Jesus taught from that boat the parable of the lamp and the basket, the parable of the seeds, and the parable of the mustard seed. But as the sun started to dip below the horizon, the throng of, of people, the mass of people who assembled at the water's edge probably began to dissipate. People probably began to turn and go back to their own homes. And so Jesus, already in the boat and probably weary from a long day of ministry, remember Jesus was a man, he got weary as we get weary in his humanity. After a long day of teaching, Jesus instructs his disciples saying, let us go across to the other side. Mark narrates it for us. Look at your Bible there. Chapter 4, verse 36. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. Now, while some would say that Jesus' purpose for setting sail to the other side of the sea was to retreat from the crowds and rest, I would say that that is not Jesus' primary uh, means here. Jesus did retreat from time to time. As a matter of fact, we've seen that already in our text. Mark 1.35, very early in the morning before the sun rose, Jesus went to a solitary place, a dark place, a desolate place where he prayed. But I don't think that was Jesus' primary purpose for instructing the disciples to set sail for the other side of the sea. I think Jesus' primary purpose was probably twofold. Here are my thoughts this morning. First, Jesus' ministry was always on the move. Jesus rarely stayed in one place for a long period of time. He was always on the move. We observe him throughout the Gospels, rarely again, staying in a single location for long periods of time. Remember, if you remember back to chapter 1, verse 35, when Jesus went to a solitary or desert place where he prayed, remember his disciples came and they rebuked him or they chastised him? They said, Jesus, what are you, what are you doing out here? All by yourself, when all these massive people are, are here, you're, you're missing an opportunity to capitalize on your, on your popularity. What are, you, what are you doing out here alone? They, they chastised him or they lightly rebuked him. But Jesus replied, let us go on to the next towns, for I must preach there also, for this is why I came out. And Jesus was an itinerant preacher, always on the move. Likewise, Jesus says here to his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And we'll find out what ministry looks like for Jesus on the other side when we turn the page into chapter 5 next week. I think the second reason that Jesus tells his disciples to pull up the anchor and to head to the other side of the sea was that in doing so, it provided an opportunity for Jesus to test the faith, the durability of the faith of his disciples. The disciples had been with Jesus for some time now, and they, more than anyone else, had a front row seat to his life and his ministry. They, they got an eyewitness view, a first-person view and account that few others got. They had heard Jesus teach and preach about the glories of the coming kingdom. They had seen Jesus with their own eyeballs cast out demons. They were present when Jesus healed the sick and the diseased. 
They had even seen him forgive a man's sin right in front of the religious leaders of the day. But for all they saw and all they heard, did they trust him? That's the question. And that's what we put to the test here in chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Did these disciples trust him with their lives? Let's look at the text and find out. As they were crossing to the other side of the sea, look at verse 37. Mark writes for us here, A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a unique body of water. It's actually not a sea at all, it's a, it's a lake. It's the lowest freshwater lake on the planet, about 13 miles in length and about 8 miles across in width. And it's nestled some 700 feet below sea level, skirted by a lofty mountain range gouged with deep ravines. It's, it's an incredible spectacle. I would encourage you, check out Google Earth and uh, just do some, some looking around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, better yet, if you want to go there in person, we hope to go there. This coming April, join us, April 9th through the 19th, as, as we uh, desire to go and to walk where Jesus walked and to uh, teach along the way. An incredibly unique body of water. Uh, these ravines that cut into the, the mountains that, that surrounded the Sea of Galilee functioned like a funnel. And so hurling strong, cold winds from the mountains would come right down uh, onto the, uh, the, the lake level there. When the colder mountain air collided with the warmer air over the sea, it resulted in, in incredibly violent and abrupt storms. It's interesting, Mark uses the word here, laylaps, translated windstorm or gales in most of your Bibles. But Matthew actually calls this storm a seismos, literally an earthquake. I mean, this was, this was not a, a spring shower here. This was not an April shower here. This was an incredibly violent storm that arose or kicked up very, very quickly. You can imagine the intensity of this storm if the disciples, at least four of whom were experienced fishermen, I mean, that would have been Peter, Andrew, James, and John, were all said to be terrified. These are men who, who would have been on fishing vessels in the midst of other previous storms. But in this storm, they are shook to the core. They're terrified. Matthew's account of this story in Matthew chapter 8, verse 24, notes that the storm came suddenly without warning. And so here we are. Jesus has instructed his disciples to, to push out away from the storm in this small fishing boat. And without warning, the disciples' world was shaken. In a split second, all that was calm became chaos. The gentle breeze that filled the small vessel's sail was now gusting with hurricane force wind. And the gentle waves that lapped against the side of the boat were now crashing into its hull and over its bow, filling it with water faster than the disciples could bail it out. Chaos in an instant. Friends, aren't most storms sudden? Having the doctor sit you down and tell you that it's cancer? Maybe it's operable, maybe it's terminal. That's a sudden storm. Finding out that you have 4 to 6 or 8 to 12 or 12 to 16 or 24 months to live, that's a sudden storm. 
When your spouse has been unfaithful, that's a sudden storm. When, when the marriage vows are crushed in a moment, that's a sudden storm. I'm sorry, but we're eliminating your position. That's a sudden storm. What do I do now? Where do I go? How am I going to take care of my family? The death of a loved one. That's a storm. Potentially the death of a spouse or the death of a child. These are all sudden storms, and there are many, many others like them. But storms oftentimes come careening into our lives without warning, suddenly. How did the disciples respond to this story, or this storm, rather? Look at verse 38. Panic-stricken, riddled with fear, the disciples wake Jesus, and they chastise him again. They rebuke him again, just like they rebuked him back in chapter 1. Jesus, why are you out here praying by yourself? Get out there with the people. Capitalize on your popularity. Well, here they chastise Jesus again, saying, Teacher, do you not even care that we're perishing? You see, from the, from the disciples' perspective, Jesus was unaware of their plight. From the disciples' perspective, Jesus did not know what was going on in that small vessel as the disciples were terrified and fear-stricken. They thought Jesus was oblivious to their misery, that he had forsaken them. And if we're honest, in the middle of life's storms, don't we often feel that way? Jesus, where are you in the death of a spouse or the death of a child? Jesus, where are you when the terminal verdict comes from the doctor? Jesus, where are you when I get the pink slip and my job is eliminated? Where are you? Are you aware of my plight? We mistakenly conclude that we're all alone and that no one, not even God, knows what's happening or how we're feeling. Let me remind you, Christian, nothing could be farther from the truth. Nothing could be farther from the truth. God knows every wave that falls on you, and he's using each one of them for a very specific, sovereign purpose in your life. Don't ever think that God is unaware. Don't ever think that he's not near. Don't ever think that he's left you. Defend for yourself. When life seems most out of control, it could never be more in control. Every storm in your life and in mine is divinely ordained by God. It is a moment whereby God is working to reveal who he is, who we are, and who we need. Every storm, every trial, every tragedy, every peril, every difficulty is a divinely ordained moment sovereignly orchestrated by God, where God is teaching us something about who we are, about who he is, and about who we need. You see, trials and tribulations, difficulties and desperate moments are often the times when God does his greatest work in the hearts and lives of his children. He sovereignly orchestrates every circumstance for our good, and that good is oftentimes bringing us to the end of ourselves, driving us to his sufficiency. God uses trials and the difficulties of this life to refine us, to sanctify us, to grow us, to chisel away the old man that we might reflect more of Jesus. And ultimately, God uses every trial in your life 
to glorify his son. God uses every crashing wave in your life, every wave that comes careening over the bow, even when you think you can't bail it out fast enough, to glorify his son. Ultimately, to glorify his son and your response of that trial. God is at work preparing you and me, believers, for the day that we will stand before him in glory without spot or wrinkle or any such defect. God is preparing for you in the storms of today a readiness, a fitness for eternity. The disciples and we alike needed to learn that Jesus can be trusted in the storms of life. That tiny boat carrying Jesus and his disciples was the object of the most minute heavenly attention, and so it is with us in our trials. God is aware. He's aware of every detail. He's aware of every intricacy. He's aware of everything that you don't ask others to pray for for you. We trust him when the skies are clear and the sea is calm. The question here is do we trust him in the trials and difficulties and hardships of life? Or do we doubt him when the, when the wind howls and the waves come crashing in? There are often two, ta- two things that we doubt in moments of trial or difficulty or adversity or pain. We oftentimes doubt God's goodness. Look at the disciples here. They say, do you not even care? Jesus, do you not even care? What are they doubting in that statement? They're doubting his goodness. They're, 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 they're doubting the fact that he loves them and has just called them to himself. Do you even care? The second thing that we doubt is God's grace. This is reflected in the statement, we're perishing. Can, can you not see? Do you not know? We're perishing. We're dying here. The disciples, they doubt his goodness and they doubt his grace. And oftentimes when life gets difficult, so do we. We doubt his goodness to us. We doubt his grace. The story was once told of an officer in the army who was drafted aboard a boat with his regiment. He was a, a pious, religious man, and he actually embarked with his family. He brought his family on board with him, his wife and his children. They had not been at sea many days at all when a violent storm arose, which threatened the destruction of the ship and the loss of all their lives. Terror prevailed among the crew and all the passengers, and and this army man's wife was also greatly alarmed. But interestingly enough, in the the middle of the, the whipping wind and the crashing waves, the officer seemed calm and composed. His wife, observing his untroubled disposition, began to chastise him, urging him that if he wasn't concerned for his own safety, then he sure is better be concerned for theirs his wife, and his children. Without a reply, he left the cabin only to return a short while later with his sword in hand, drawn from its sheath. With a stern countenance, he pointed that sword at his wife's chest. But she did not smirk. She did not faint. She did not give the, the, the smallest indication of fear or concern. What, he said, are you not afraid when a sword is drawn to your chest? Her reply, no. No, confidently, she said. Not when I know it's in the hand of one who loves me. 
To which this army man said, then why should you have me to be afraid in the middle of this storm when I know that it's in the hand of my heavenly father who loves me and you and cares for us both? Brothers and sisters, there's great purpose in every one of your trials. Rest assured that each trial that providentially comes to pass in your life, that God sovereignly allows to come to pass in your life, comes attached with great and significant purpose. God knows what he's doing. James tells us not only how we should respond to God-ordained trials in our lives, but he also tells us what their purpose is. I would encourage you, if you don't have James 1.24 memorized, to, to memorize that. Jot that down in the margin somewhere and go home and memorize it this week. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Every crashing wave... Every trial, every terror of living in this Genesis 3 fallen world comes sifted from the hands of an omnipotent, sovereign God who loves you in Christ Jesus. You believe that? It's easy to talk about that in a controlled environment like this. But the rubber meets the road when the winds of adversity come howling. That's when you and I are forced to put our theology into action. That's when you and I are forced to live what it is we say we believe. That's where the rubber meets the road, theologically. We can't forget that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Just like a master tailor carefully stitches together a beautiful garment so God has wisely and sovereignly tailored a set of divine circumstances for your life and my life that will result in you and me bearing more and more of a resemblance to his son, Jesus Christ. And that's good. That's good. If cancer makes you more like Jesus, cancer's good. If death makes you more like Jesus, then death is good. All of these are the result of sin, and sin is not good. But if in them you are conformed more and more into the image of Jesus, that is a good thing, friends. Rejoice and be glad. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the old physician turned pastor, once said this, he said, the Christian does not know everything, amen, neither does your pastor. The Christian doesn't know everything, but he does know one thing. Look at him or look at her in trouble with apparently everything at odds against him or her. When he or she is so perplexed that they do not know what to do, they don't even know how to pray as they ought. He's confused and doesn't always understand, yet even at that very point, he can say, I do not know which way to go or which way to turn. I do not understand why these things are happening to me, and I do not know exactly what to ask for in this moment. But I do know this, that in spite of all my ignorance, in spite of everything that's happening to me, this and everything else is working together for my good. Peter encourages us. He says, brothers, don't, don't be surprised when you face 
fiery trials. As though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so you ask yourself the question, why? Why the trials? Why the pain? Why the difficulties? Why the suffering? Why the temptations? Why the heartache? Why the pain? Why the tragedy? Let me give you a handful of reasons this morning. This is by no means an exhaustive list. Matter of fact, it's probably better understood as the tip of the iceberg. But let me give you just a few reasons why God sovereignly ordains suffering in the lives of his children. Being a Christian, by the way, does not exempt us from the most severe trials this side of eternity. And so why? Why? Let me give you just a few here. First of all, God uses trials to help us learn to trust his wise providence in our lives. God uses trials. He uses pain. He uses adversity. He uses difficulty. He uses tragedy to help us learn to trust his wise providence, to help us learn to trust his goodness in our lives. Friends, mark it down. It's as good as gold. You can take it to the bank every day. God knows what is best for you, and he does what is best with you if you know him. God knows what is best for you and does what is best with you. The 18th century hymn writer William Cooper I would encourage you to study his life. Maybe write that down in the margin. You can go check him out later. Was an incredible man. He struggled with lots of difficulty, lots of adversity in his Christian life. He struggled with uh, very strong bouts of depression in his life. But he became friends with John Newton, a famed hymn writer, wonderful theologian. And Newton began to see that he could bring Cooper along with him as he went and visited uh, ailing church members. And the two of them, as they walked along the road and they, and they ministered and visited believers together, they, they began to write hymns together. Uh, Newton was actually influenced greatly uh, by the depth of theological lyric that, that Cooper wrote. And Cooper wrote a hymn entitled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And it is wonderful. Listen to these lyrics here. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in his dark and hidden minds, with never failing skill, he fashions all his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Oh, fearful saints, new courage take. The clouds that you now dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Brothers and sisters, God knows what is best for you, and he does what is best with you. Believe it. The second thing I want to draw your attention to here is that God uses trials to expose our hearts and to deepen our faith. Oftentimes, trials and adversity and pain are used by God to reveal our sin-sick hearts. 
to reveal the filth that resides within. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that our hearts are deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand them? Who knows them? And so oftentimes God uses the trials of this life to help us see the sin, um, more specifically the unbelief that resides in the depths of our hearts. Third, God uses trials to teach us to pray. We are called to pray continually. That is without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. To pray at all times, Paul says. But oh, how often we become soft in our prayer lives. Prayer communicates a lot of things. Probably most importantly, prayer communicates what you believe to be true about God. If you want to know what you believe to be true about God, listen to the way you pray. Or consider the way you pray. Because the way you pray reveals what you believe to be true about God. Or what you don't believe to be true about God. Does our prayer communicate that God is the all-sufficient benefactor? And that we are the ever-needy beneficiaries? God uses trials to teach us to pray, to drive us to our knees, to humble us, that we would see our insufficiency in his great sufficiency. Fourthly, God uses trials to reveal our smallness and our weakness and our frailty. God uses trials to remind us that we are not as big as we think we are. That we are not as strong as we think we are. That we are not as all together as we believe ourselves to be. Trials serve to keep us from thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. Romans 12.3 They remind us that God is the potter and we are the clay. We're small, we're weak, and we're frail. But we're in the hands of an almighty God. Five, God uses trials to humble us and to shake us of our self-confidence. Why? Why, God? Why the trial? Why the pain? Why the tragedy? Why the difficulty? Well, oftentimes it's to humble us and to shake us of our self-confidence. We need to be humbled. We, we need to be rid of our self-confidence. It's good for us to be brought low before God. It reminds us of our need for forgiveness and grace. It reminds us how dependent upon God we are. When we are humble and contrite, we are in the best position to learn from God. When we are submissive, we are poised to learn from Him and grow. Six, God uses trials to loosen our attachment to the things of this world. Oh, how quick we are to become attached to the things of this fleeting world. I have often said, and I'll say it again because it bears repeating, if it rusts, rots, collects dust, or dies, don't attach your significance, your purpose, or your worth, or your value to it. The things of this earth are fading, they're fleeting. And so God oftentimes uses trial, he oftentimes uses difficult circumstances to pry our fingers off the things of this fleeting world. Thomas Watson, one of the old Puritans, which I would commend to your reading, once said this. He said, when you dig away the earth from the root of a tree, it's to loosen the tree from the earth. 
So God digs away our earthly comforts to loosen our heart from the things of earth. God would have this world hang just like a loose tooth to us, which being pulled away does not trouble us much. Is it not a good thing to be weaned, he asks, even the oldest saints are in need of it. We need to be weaned from the things of this world. Even after we've been walking with the Lord for decades upon decades, we need to be weaned of this world. Seven, God uses trials to arrest our attention and to awaken us from our spiritual slumber. Boy, when we come to Christ, we are oftentimes wide-eyed, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. We are excited about the things of the Lord. We are excited about dealing aggressively with sin. We are excited about the Word of God. We are excited about sharing Christ with everything around us that has a pulse. But oh, how quickly we can be lulled to sleep. Oh, how quickly we can fall into a spiritual slumber. We get apathetic. We become spiritually lethargic. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, the most dangerous time for a Christian is when everything seems to be going well. That's one of the most dangerous times for the Christian. When things are going well without much change and without much incident. Because if we're not careful, we can easily slide into the ruts of life and we can become complacent. The fire that once burned within can begin to wean, wane. Trials have a way of startling us and awaking us. Jones concludes, it is very good to have the routine of life occasionally upset, no matter what the interruption may be. Number eight, I'll give you just a couple of more. God uses trials to draw us back to himself when we wander away from him. Remember Isaiah 53, 6? We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Friends, even redeemed sheep are prone to wander. Even redeemed sheep are prone to leave the God they love. And because God is a good shepherd, he graciously extends the shepherd hook and draws us back in. Twice, twice in Psalm 19, the psalmist acknowledges that God has used affliction, pain, suffering, difficult circumstances to grow him spiritually and to draw him back to himself. In Psalm 119, 67, the psalmist says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Just a few verses later in verse 71, he says, is it not good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes? Number nine, God uses trials to demonstrate his love. God uses trials to demonstrate his great love for us. Solomon, speaking wisdom to his son in Proverbs chapter 3, reminds us, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves those whom he loves as a father reproves his son in whom he delights. But I think if we're honest... We are quick to equate trial and tragedy, pain and suffering, difficult circumstances with the antithesis of the love of God. Satan would love to convince you that trials are a sure sign that God has something against you. Satan would love to, to whisper in your ear that your trials are a sure sign that God has checked out and left you on your own. 
Friends, God never promises not to take us through difficult places, but he has promised to be with us in hard times. God reminds us through the prophet Isaiah, fear not, for I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, which, let me pause right there, when, not if, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, again, not if, but when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Believers, God has not promised us an easy trip, but he has promised you, if you know him savingly, a guaranteed arrival at your destination. I was thinking about another song this week in my study, sung by Laura Story. It's entitled Blessings, probably familiar to a number of you. Just listen to these words here. We pray for blessings. We pray for peace. Comfort for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. And all the while, you hear each spoken need. Yet love is way too much to give us lesser things. She goes on, what if your blessings come through raindrops and your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if the trials of this life are actually mercies in disguise? What if my greatest disappointments are the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst that this world cannot satisfy? What if the trials of this life, the rain, the storms, the hardest nights, are really your mercies in disguise? Friends, that's good theology. Lastly, and again, this is but a scratch and sniff version here, but God uses trials to prepare us for glory. God uses trials to prepare us for glory. As plowing prepares the ground for a crop, so the trials of this life ready us for the day when we stand before our maker face to face. Paul reminds us, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is not even in comparison to this current world or my current circumstances. Let me ask you this, friend. When was the last time you thanked God for your trials? When was the last time you stopped and thanked God for the storms of life? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks when? In all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. When was the last time we stopped? And I, I, I am convicted as I ask the question that we stopped to ask God for his grace to endure trials and then thanked him for them. And then let me ask you another question. What if the answer to your prayer what if your answer to your thanking God is this? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. What if in God's wisdom he has determined not to turn down the trial, but rather to turn up his grace? Sometimes God calms the storm. But as you've heard, sometimes God lets the storm rage, and instead he calms his child. God oftentimes sweetens our outward pain with inward peace. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
If we understand that God is in control and that he's working all things for our good, then we can say right along with Job, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. If you're a believer here this morning, don't ever forget that there is honey at the end of God's rod. There's honey at the end of God's rod. God works all things for the good of those who love him, even when you're challenged to see it or believe it. The disciples, though they lacked faith in the moment, they're not abandoned to a watery peril here. Look at verse 39 back in your Bible there. Mark writes, and he, Jesus, awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea, saying, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. I mean, Jesus spoke to the wind's friends, and they obeyed him. He spoke to the waves, and they instantaneously submitted to his command, turning placid as a pond. Though the disciples, and we oftentimes, allow our fear to trump our faith, Jesus did not ream his disciples here. He, he rebuked them, but he did not ream them. What did Jesus ream? The wind and the waves. Now, Jesus had a lesson here. Why do you have so little faith, guys? You've been with me for so much already. You've seen so much already. More than anyone else has seen or heard, you've been eyewitness to. But the scathing rebuke here is to the wind and the waves. It's interesting to note here that the language that Jesus employs in verse 39, the word rebuke there, it's the same word that's used back in chapter 1, verse 25, when Jesus rebuked the evil spirit in the synagogue in Capernaum. Likewise, the Greek word translated be still here literally means to be muzzled. Be muzzled. So let me, I don't want to lose you here, but, but I want you to see some significance here in verse 39, okay? This is a bit technical, but track with me for a second here. The verb, be still, actually occurs in the second person singular. What that means is, don't, don't, don't get lost here, it means that Jesus is addressing a person and not just the natural elements of the wind and the waves. Jesus' language here is more appropriate of, of, de, of the demonic order than it reveals just a rebuking of natural elements. I think what Jesus is revealing here about himself to his disciples is, I am a strong man who has come to vanquish Satan. And just as the natural elements submit to Jesus' authority, so do Satan and all of his host. Matter of fact, as we turn the, chapter, uh, the, turn, turn the page into chapter 5 next week, uh, we'll see that Jesus is confronted again with demonic forces that would try to thwart his extension of his ministry into Gentile territory, but Jesus cannot be stopped. He cannot be stopped. After Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves, the beam of his heart-searching spotlight comes to rest on his disciples. Look at verse 40. Jesus asks them this penetrating question. He says to them, why are you so afraid? Why do you panic? Why are you fearful? Why do you doubt my care and concern for you? Why do you, why do you think that I've forsaken you? And he puts his finger right on the reason. Look back at the text. He says, have you still no faith? Was it that the disciples had no faith at all? That certainly wasn't the case. That's not what Jesus is implying here. The disciples had faith, but in the moment of their trial, they exchanged their faith for their feelings. We oftentimes do the same. When, when we are tempted to accuse God 
or to blame God or to point a finger in the middle of trial or difficult circumstances or tragedy. It's because we have exchanged our faith for our feelings. Our feelings have removed the captain of our salvation from the driver's seat and now they are firmly planted there. Our feelings are in control. All the disciples could see was their immediate circumstances. Their their view of God had shrunk and their view of their circumstances loomed large. They had forgotten all that Jesus had said to them in the Sermon on the Mount about the extent of God's care for them. Every, Every hair on your head is numbered, I'll take care of you. They had forgotten that God who takes care of the birds who neither reap nor sow nor gather into barns also knew them intimately well. They let their feelings do the talking instead of their theology. You see, faith is the response of truth. When truth is in the driver's seat, faith is the response. When feelings are in the driver's seat, my view of my circumstances and blaming is the response. When the storm clouds of trials and tribulations come rolling into your life, and friends, they will, it's not if, but it's when. You must remind yourself of what you know to be true about God's word. You must remind yourself of what you know to be true concerning the surety, the verity of God's character. The unshakable nature of God's character. You must remind yourself of that. As we bring the story to a close here this morning, let me me point out that the greatest danger in this story is not the wind and the waves. That's not the greatest danger that's presented to us in this text. The greatest danger in this story is unbelief. Our greatest problems don't exist around us, friends. Our greatest problems are within us. Fear is the opposite of faith. Fear is the product of unbelief. The writer of Hebrews warns us when he says, Take care, be on guard, brothers, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Will your fear of the Lord lead you to put your trust in him, or will you accuse him? Will you accuse him? Fear that does not take you to God will take you away from him. Look at verse 41. And they were filled with a great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? You see, the disciples' original fear of the storm was now replaced with a new fear. Fear of the one whose words brought it to naught. The disciples' fear was a response to a new depth of understanding about the person of Christ. This was a paradigm-shifting day for these men. They had just witnessed Jesus heal disease and cast out demons. But this evening... They were brought face to face with the one whose omnipotent voice stilled the raging seas. They realized that God was in their boat. Believers, he's in yours too. 